I was having a religious conversation with somebody, someone who's outside of our church recently, and he confessed when he was reading his Bible, he really didn't understand. He got kind of confused about the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Which were the laws that still applied? What was he still supposed to be listening to under the New Testament? And what was he supposed to let go of? And I'll bet many of you, as you've read through the Bible, have come to that point where you wondered about that. This is something someone earlier in history was supposed to be doing, but are we still supposed to be doing that now? Thoughtful readers of the Bible will do that. You'll run into that question fairly early on. If you've started your new read through the Bible in a year and you're doing it chronologically or in the actual order, then maybe you've already run into that question. It's not a question that we really should ignore. There are things God has done in the past that he is now not doing, and there are things we are to focus on more now in this church age. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, it states there, Jesus said, I did not come into the world to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to to, uh, destroy the law and the prophets. That's the Old Testament. I came to fulfill it. I didn't come to, to say that the Old Testament was wrong. I came to fulfill it. That's what Jesus said. But even though he said he's not destroying the Old Covenant, in fulfilling it, some things had to change. So we might ask, what changed? What were the changes? going from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. What are those changes? In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 22, it tells us Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. Well, that lets us know the New Covenant, the New Testament, is a better covenant. I could figure that out. Um, They're not equal. What we have in this age is better. Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. What makes it better? What makes our New Covenant better? It's supposed to be better. Did you know it was better, by the way? And, and if it is better, what's better about it? Um, what do you have that the Old Testament saints did not have? That's a good question. That's a good starting point. Well, I would say to you that the New Testament tells us that one of the great improvements in the New Covenant, in the New Covenant is the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Was the Holy Spirit active in the lives of believers in the Old Testament? The answer to that is yes, but he was not as active or as intensely active as we find in the New Covenant. So that is one of the great improvements is our role and our relationship to the Holy Spirit. Today we're going to get to probe what that better relationship is to the Holy Spirit of God. Obviously our relationship to God is central to all that we do. Um, This is not just about coming in here and learning a few laws and living a Christian ethic. We are to have a growing relationship with God. Well, of the three members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one in this age we're most closely connected to is the third member, the Holy Spirit. We want to grow in our relationship to the Holy Spirit. We need to learn what is that relationship and why is it that we are closer to the Holy Spirit? How does that affect our walk? How does it affect the power that is available to us as we live the Christian life? We are a non-charismatic church. That doesn't mean that we don't have spiritual gifts. We have just as many spiritual gifts in our congregation as any other local church uh, throughout the world. 
But non-charismatic churches have a tendency, I think, at least from my observations, to overreact sometimes against the abuses of the mysticism involved in the charismatic movements and tend to downplay the important role the Holy Spirit does play in the life of a believer. Maybe embarrassed by some of the strange manifestations that occur in some of those churches, we might say, you know, we don't do those things here. And so we don't want to talk about the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit as much. But that would be just as much a mistake as the errors of the charismatic movement. We do have an improved and powerful relationship to the Holy Spirit of God, and I do believe it's essential we understand that, and I hope that today's message will challenge you in your relationship to the Holy Spirit. Open your Bibles to Acts 10, and we're going to read the very end of uh, Peter's message to Cornelius and his household as we come to the end of this long and great section We're going to read verses 44 through 48. Acts chapter 10, 44 to 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Well, here we come to the end of this long discourse related to the conversion of Cornelius, who is indeed a Gentile. He is converted, really, from what we would call a God-fearer in the Old Testament sense to a saved follower of Jesus under the banner of the New Covenant. This is a passage marking a transition, transition from the time of people living under an old arrangement, the Old Covenant, and now they're living under a better arrangement, the New Covenant, what we also call the Church Age or the Age of the Spirit. What we see here is that the New Testament believer is immersed in a life in the Holy Spirit in a way that an Old Covenant believer was not. The New Covenant believer is immersed in the life of the Spirit in a way the Old Covenant believer was not. This text provides some proofs of that. It actually provides proofs that the Spirit of God was indeed given as a gift to the Gentiles in the same way and to the same measure as to the Jews. I want to go over those proofs with you. That's going to be the first half of what we talk about today. Proofs that the Gentiles got the same Holy Spirit, same power, to the same degree that the people of Israel got. Then, after we've done that, I want to kind of use this text as a launching board to do a little bit of surveying what does the rest of the New Testament teach us about the doctrine of the the Spirit of God working in the life of the New Covenant believer. What is it that we as New Covenant believers have that we need to be more aware of and utilize? Okay, so first we're going to talk about the proofs the Gentiles got the same Spirit, and then we're going to survey life in the Spirit, okay? First are the proofs. Look back at the text verses 44 and 45. The first proof is that the Jews themselves were amazed 
that the Gentiles got the Spirit. Look at verses 44 and 45 again. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all of those who were listening to the message. Who were they? Those are the Gentiles, right? All those listening to the message were the Gentiles in Cornelius' house. So all the circumcised believers, who are they? Those are the Jews, right? They're, they're, they're circumcised to be obedient to the law of Moses and in the keeping of the Abrahamic covenant. They're under the banner of the old covenant. So that's who they are. They who came with Peter, and remember Peter also is a Jew, they were astonished. They were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Please notice that the Spirit's descent onto the Gentiles in Cornelius' house happened exactly while Peter was preaching the gospel about Jesus. Remember that. Look backwards a little bit and you'll see. Peter's preaching about what? He's preaching about Jesus' life. He went on and talked about Jesus' death and then he accentuated Jesus' resurrection. He's preaching the gospel and as he's preaching, right while he's doing it, there's no invitation, please come forward and we'll sing just as I am. He's preaching and immediately, while he's not even finishing the evangelistic sermon, the Spirit of God falls, boom, right on these these, uh, Gentiles. That's the scene and it's amazing. Every last one of them that was listening, Spirit of God fell on them. What does that mean? That means they must have also been believing as they were listening, right? Because God does not confirm the heart of an unbeliever with granting the Holy Spirit. So these were believers. It means then that they were old enough to hear and to understand and to believe, to come to the conclusion that this is all true, so there's no babies and there are no real young children that are, are uh, receiving the Spirit of God here or getting water baptized. These are all uh, older people that are hearing and believing. And they listen, and God immediately confirms their faith by the Holy Spirit falling upon them. These Gentiles in Cornelius' house had not even been circumcised. They had not been given some instruction about how to keep the law of Moses. They were... Uh, They were not water baptized. No water baptism for these guys. They're just sitting and listening to the gospel of Jesus. People ask, how can I be saved? How can I be saved and have all of my sins forgiven and have a relationship with God and know that I'm going to heaven and you just read it? You listen to the good news about Jesus who died on the cross for you and rose from the dead. And if you believe it, you're saved right then and there in your seat. You don't have to stand up and come forward and have an altar call. You're already saved by faith alone. Do you see that? Faith alone saves you, and that's what happened to these people. They did not keep the law of Moses. They were not water baptized. All they had is hearing and believing. That's it. And that should be pretty obvious from the, from the text. By faith alone, God saved them, and God gave them the same gift of the Holy Spirit. Same gift the Jews got in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. And I'd like you also notice that since it describes the Spirit as falling down upon them, why is that significant? Because it shows us throughout this entire passage that the one that is in control has not been Peter trying to grow the size of the church. Although I'm sure he was trying to grow the size of the church. But the one in charge was who? God. God, the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ above. He is in charge of his church. He's taking the action and he decided The Holy Spirit is going to come down right here and right now. It's from above. It shows the sovereignty of God. No one one could say, okay, God, 
Time to send the Spirit. No, God will choose it when he does. And he sent the Spirit. God was in control, not Peter. Jesus was doing the baptizing with the element of the Holy Spirit from above. He was pouring out his Spirit. It was not men doing that. In fact, Peter and the Jews were surprised. Surprised. Wait, what? They're getting the gift of the Holy Spirit? It shocked them. God completely bypassed circumcision and obedience to the law of Moses and confirmed their full participation in the new covenant by faith alone. That is the first proof that they got the Holy Spirit, the Jews' amazement. The second proof is that they, the second proof that they received the Spirit is that they spoke in the sign of tongues or the language of tongues. Look at verse 46. I know everyone gets confused about tongues, but it's really so simple. And for most of church history, there was not much of a debate about what it is. What does it say, verse 46? For they, that's the Jews, right? The Jews were hearing them, who's the them? The Gentiles, speaking with tongues. Glossolalia. Speaking with tongues, and through that speaking, what were they saying? They were what? They were exalting God. They were hearing them speaking with tongues, or languages. That word tongues means languages. Tongue speaking, glossolalia, was a miraculous sign meant for the Jewish people to signal them that God was doing something amazing. We saw this back in Acts chapter 2. No mistaking it. In fact, the 15 different languages that the, uh, the, uh, the Jewish disciples spoke in or even listed in Acts chapter 2, they were known human languages throughout the world, but not languages that those Galileans could possibly have spoken in. So it was a miracle. It's like me breaking out in Chinese and you breaking out in Japanese or or Tagalog, or whatever it is, and all of a sudden we have people that never studied the language speaking perfectly in that language and exalting God through that language. That's what happened in Acts 2, and that's what's happening right here in Acts chapter 10. We learned in Acts 2 that, that tongues is supernatural. It's not the gibberish that you hear in some of the churches where they speak in some emotional, ecstatic language with a lot of repeated syllables that is no language at all, and they say, that's the gift of tongues, that's the gift of tongues, that's not a miracle, that would impress nobody. <laughs> there are other religions of the world that practice that very thing. Back then, there were religions that did that, mystery religions, and today there are religions that do that. That would impress nobody as a sign. But to speak in, in another language you couldn't possibly know, well, that would get your attention. That would get your attention. So what, what happened there is not what you hear in the churches today. What happened there was supernatural. It was essentially, tongues really is essentially prophecy or praising of God in a different language that you don't know how to speak. And so it was a sign then to the Jews. Do you see that? I gave you that sign on the day of Pentecost so that you knew you had the Holy Spirit. Now I'm giving the exact same sign to the Gentiles. Now there are some interpreters that when they come to Acts chapter 10, they say, you know what? They concede that in Acts chapter 2, it really was a supernatural ability to speak in another known human language, but so that they can justify their, what they call prayer language or their ecstatic utterances, they say, by the time we get to Acts chapter 10, it's an entirely different kind of a gift. 
Now, that sounds a little hokey when it comes to interpretation right off the bat. If you're in the same book of the Bible, written by the same author, using the exact same terminology, and the author has already told you what the experience is, when you read later about it, it's going to be the same exact experience, right? That's just common interpretive sense. But one of the reasons they give that it's a different, a different uh, gift uh, is because they say, look, on the day of Pentecost with the uh, Jews... They had people that were gathered from all around the world, and so you had these, all these different ethnic people that were gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, and they're not here in Cornelius' house, and so how would anybody even know that they're speaking the other languages? And I personally find that a very weak argument because they would all, many of them speak uh, two, three, four languages themselves. They would be from different areas. They would speak different dialects. They would certainly know that these are languages that are spoken, that have been heard in trade and all the rest of that. So I think the, the greater weight is on the fact that it's the same terminology, the same context, the same author, therefore it's the same experience. And, and to, really, to really clinch the deal, you need to remember that what's happening here is the Jews are needing to be convinced that the Gentiles are getting the same gift. And they wouldn't be convinced if all of a sudden they broke out and they spoke la-la-la-la-da, ta-di-da-di-da-di-da. And, or, or some ecstatic repeated syllables that we, they call ecstatic utterance. That is not the gift of tongues. The gift of languages is the ability to reverse the Tower of Babel. That's impressive. And that's when the Jews stood up and said, I mean, the Jews are not going to just simply bypass 1,500 years of keeping the law of Moses and say, yeah, I guess we never really had to keep the law of Moses. It's okay. They would need some pretty strong evidence that, okay, the Messiah of Israel and his kingdom is moving forward apart from being circumcised and keeping the law of Moses. And this is the sign that convinced them. Gibberish just would not do that. And I don't mean to offend anyone if you've had various experiences and that has excited you in your prayer life and you've called it a, a, a prayer language or something like that. I do believe that many in the charismatic movement have a dynamic faith for God and they are in tune with the Holy Spirit. And I think sometimes they're too often ridiculed. And I say more power to them if their faith in God grows. But we have to, we have to explain the experiences that we have by the word of God, not the other way around. Does that make sense? And so we need to come to understand our experiences by defining them by the Bible. I don't want to ridicule someone because of their experience. They could be very close to God, and they could have an emotional experience, and they can be very sincere about that, but that doesn't make that thing the gift of tongues, okay? But I, I also don't want us criticizing men and women who are growing in their relationship to the Holy Spirit while we check off our boxes and say, we have our doctrine right, but we don't have as close a relationship to the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense to you? It doesn't to me. Why would we boast about having orthodox doctrine if we don't live and breathe and love the Holy Spirit of God? Why would we do that? I, that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, some people that have a lesser background to teaching have more love for the Lord Jesus Christ in their heart than people that get a boatload of teaching and sit on it. And I, I pray that doesn't happen in this church. I really do. Well, that was the second proof. And I'm rushing all of these because I don't have as much time today. The third proof is just the arrival of the Spirit himself. Look at verses 47 and 48. I I'm sorry. The third proof of the arrival of the Spirit is that the Gentiles were now treated differently by the Jews. 
the Gentiles were now treated differently by the Jews. Sorry about that. That's the third proof. Look at verses 47 and 48. Then Peter answered. Look how he responded. Now remember, this is the Peter that just before, when he had the vision of the, the animals that were unclean, and he was told, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And he said, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything unclean. Remember that? Now look at Peter saying, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? That's a rhetorical question. It demands a negative answer. Verse 48, and he uses apostolic authority there. He ordered them to be baptized in the name of of Jesus Christ. And then they, that's Cornelius and the household, the Gentiles, asked Peter to stay on for a few days. What's that about? Peter stayed with the Gentiles, lived under his roof, ate his food, and had fellowship with the brand new Gentile believers in a way he never just, a few days before that, never would have dreamed of doing. He treated, he and the other Jews, treated the Gentile believers not as second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, but as brothers and sisters in Christ. Beautiful, isn't it? Absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. He has learned. And what learning? How fast he learned it. In fact, he learned it so fast. When we get to chapter 11, we're going to find out that the, the rest of the Jewish believers back in Jerusalem, they're not buying it at first. They're hearing this report about Peter and the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit, and they're like, no, you made a big mistake. You went and ate with Gentiles, and you did this and that, and you represent the church. What were you thinking? And so we have to have an entire, a whole nother chapter, chapter 11, to just show how hard this lesson was for the Jews to get uh, into their minds that faith in Jesus Christ is all that anybody needs to be in right relationship with God and to receive the Spirit of God. And so uh, they stayed on. Um, they had them water baptized and they fellowship with them. I want to make a couple of points about water baptism here. First of all, please notice, water baptism is only for believers. Do you see that? They believed, then they were water baptized. Is there anything difficult about that? Why is that so difficult? You say, well, there, there were babies in Cornelius' house that were, that were baptized. No, there weren't, because it says they all received the Holy Spirit, they all believed, they listened, so these are all older people, all right? Baptism is for believers. Please notice it's also in the name of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Why is that important? Because the waters of baptism uh, carry with it the idea of identity. In other words, when you go down into the water, you're being identified with something. The something you're being identified in some, in some, it's the Trinitarian formula. I baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here it's in the name of Jesus Christ. That means when you come out of the water, you are now clothed with Christ, so to say. You are now identified with Christ. You're going to get up and now you're going to follow the one called Jesus Christ and you're going to be obedient to his teachings, okay? And so that's important. I also want you to see that water baptism does not give anybody the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? It's very simple. I mean, God made these things very simple. What came first, the Holy Spirit or the water baptism? Look down in your Bibles, give me the answer. The Holy Spirit came before they were water baptized. So any idea that there's a priesthood, listen, a priesthood in, under the new covenant, as we find in Catholicism, for example, and that the Holy Spirit is only imparted through a sacerdotal priesthood, 
That's negated by this as well. There's nothing special about the water. There was nothing special there about a certain group of believers. The Holy Spirit was given apart from water baptism. So then why were they water baptized? Why did Peter order them to be water baptized? Answer, because water baptism does have an importance, not to save anybody, not to give them the Holy Spirit, not as a promise of future faith, as Pastor Gabe said at our last baptismal service. It is a statement that I am a believer and I am received into the community of believers, right? It was important that the Jews allow the Gentiles to be water baptized in the name of Jesus Messiah, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Jewish King, because now they're going to be part of the community of believers, equally part of that community. And really, in the New Testament sense, no one was even allowed into the community of believers unless they were water baptized. You have not been water baptized. You need to be water baptized. Not to be saved. Not to receive the Holy Spirit. You need to be water baptized to be obedient to your Lord, right? And uh, just because this is what the Lord uh, said to do. So I want you to see there that being clothed with Christ, they're received into the community of believers And uh, these are the proofs that they had received the Holy Spirit just as the Jews had, no difference at all. I'm going to close this section with Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28. Paul wrote there, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ There is neither Jew nor Greek. Sometimes the word Greek was used to substitute for Gentile. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Same Holy Spirit, same body of Christ. What a blessing. All new covenant believers in Jesus Christ. That includes you, and that includes me, right? What is this New Testament life of the Spirit? What is it? Well, in the second half, and I see I only have 10 minutes, so I have no idea how I'm going to do this, to cover the life of the Spirit. I, I would just start by saying this to you. The rest of what you will be reading from, from chapter 10 in the book of Acts through all of the epistles in the New Testament into the book of Revelation describes a community of believers that have life in the Holy Spirit. Some have called Acts chapter 10 the Gentile Pentecost. Because remember, the Jews were received, and then in 8, the Samaritans who are half-breeds were received. They were not even allowed to have the Holy Spirit until Peter the Apostle came. There was a delay in receiving the Holy Spirit because Peter was not there. Peter came. They received the Holy Spirit. Now, because Peter was present, there was no delay, so they instantly received the Spirit. So what do we have? We have Jew, half Jew, half Gentile, and full Gentile, all now part of one body. That was possible because of one ministry of the Holy Spirit that never happened in the Old Testament, and it's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When John the Baptist was doing his ministry, baptizing people with the element of water down by the Jordan River, he kept saying something like, I baptize you in water, but one who's coming who is mightier than I, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Remember? 
He said, you know, Jesus' coming is so much greater than mine. I'm going to define his coming this way. And he could have said he's coming to die for our sins. He's coming to be raised from the dead. All of that would have been true. But he said, he's coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, the greater element. Who can take the Holy Spirit of God and control the Holy Spirit of God and immerse people into the Holy Spirit of God? Nobody but God himself, right? That's Jesus. And so Jesus is now the baptizer The element is not water, as with John the Baptist. The element is now the Holy Spirit. And the ones being baptized are us. We're being dunked into that element, the Holy Spirit of God, so that we now live in the sphere of the Holy Spirit. That's New Covenant Christianity. That's New Covenant faith. That's what it is. It is the baptism, the immersion of the believer into the Holy Spirit that marks movement from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. There's no such thing now as a believer who's not baptized in the Holy Spirit. Because if you weren't baptized in the Holy Spirit, then you wouldn't even be part of the body of Christ. The doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is developed in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. I don't have time to go through and exposit it. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, it says... In one spirit, or better yet, uh, with one spirit. In one spirit is a good translation. I think the ESV has it that way. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. What body is he talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? The answer is he's talking about the body of Christ. You know, some of us are hands and some of us are eyes and we're different parts of the body. There's many members of the body, but there's only one body. How do we get into the body of Christ? And the answer is... It's the Holy Spirit. When we were placed into the sphere of the Holy Spirit, mystically, organically, we were placed into the very sphere of Christ himself. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And when we were placed into the Holy Spirit, we're placed into Christ. So now we are in Christ. And being in Christ, we're now in his body and we're members of that body. That is what that one powerful work of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, did for us. Did it for us the moment we believed in Jesus Christ. When you were saved, when you were saved, whether you were 13 years old or you were 20 years old or whatever it was, that moment that you believed in Jesus Christ, you may not have felt it, you may not have understood it, you may not have perceived it, but you were not only saved, not only forgiven of your sins right at that point in time, but you were immediately transferred into the body of Christ. That could not happen other than that very special work of the baptism of the Holy Spirit for you. And that is why nobody who is a believer in Jesus Christ today needs to go out and try to become baptized by the Holy Spirit. It completely misunderstands the historical nature of the book of Acts and the start of the church. They had to have a delay between the time that they believed in Jesus and they received the Holy Spirit because they were making a transition from what? From the old covenant into the new covenant. We're not making that transition 2,000 years into church history. The church has been here 2,000 years. It started 2,000 years ago. We're already transferred. So the baptism ministry of the Holy Spirit occurs to you immediately, felt or not felt, the moment you believe in Jesus Christ. That's the first and very important uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit to new covenant believers that you need to understand. The second one goes along with it. And um, the second one is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. In that verse, it says, not only were you baptized, but it goes on and says, and you were made to drink of the same spirit. 
And now it, it talks about the Holy Spirit as an element, kind of like water. And now it, it envisions us drinking the Holy Spirit inside of us. And so you have this dual metaphor where we're being placed, we're being dunked in the water or dunked into the Spirit. And at the same time, we're drinking it into us. And so we're taking it inside of us. So we're being placed in the Spirit, and the Spirit, at the same time, is being placed where? Inside of us, right? That's why you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and Paul is very concerned about the believers committing acts of sexual immorality, and he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of who? Of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, who is in you, inside of you. That did not happen to old covenant believers either. Old covenant believers had the Holy Spirit with them. Old covenant believers had the Holy Spirit sometimes empower them for service. Old covenant believers did not have the permanent indwelling, abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. That's a better covenant for us. He is always with us. You remember in Psalm 51, when David sinned in such a gross and terrible manner, he had to beseech God not to take away the anointing of the Holy Spirit from him, which he saw taken away from his predecessor, King Saul. He said, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's not a prayer that a new covenant believer has to pray because the abiding, indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is indeed permanent. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, in verses 8 and 9 and 10, in that section there, we are told that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, that's another way of talking about the Spirit being inside of you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, if anyone does not possess the Spirit of Christ, then he, that person, does not belong to him, Christ. The mark of ownership that Christ has over a person is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit on him. In other words, Christ put his Holy Spirit inside of you to stamp you or mark you, or as it says in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, seal you as one of his. You are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have a, a close and intimate relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. Again, where is Jesus Christ right now? He is at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, right? So the Bible says, where is God the Father right now? He is in the heavens sitting on his throne. He never gets off of his throne. He never relinquishes rule of his kingdom, right? Who is the member of the triune Godhead who in this age, under this covenant, is most closely related to us? And the answer is who? The one who lives inside of you right now. Now, that's not to break up the Trinity because where the Holy Spirit is, Jesus is, right? And where Jesus is, God the Father is. And these are mysteries we can't understand. But it is to emphasize that indeed, in this New Testament sense, the Holy Spirit lives with us. John, uh, Jesus, in John chapter 7, made a prophecy of the time of the uh, New Covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit. In John 7, verses 38 and 39, just mark the text now and look it up later. John 7, 38 and 39. Jesus said this, He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from, listen to this, from his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. And then it has a commentary on what Jesus meant by that. Verse 39 of John 7. But this Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
Do you see the time? The Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit could not even be given during the earthly life of Jesus, such as in John 7, because Jesus was not yet what? Glorified. What does that mean? He wasn't put up on the cross yet, dying for the sins of the world. He hadn't been raised from the dead. And most importantly for his glory, he hadn't ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. After he was glorified, then from the right hand of the Father, he poured forth the Holy Spirit. Yes? That's what happens in Acts chapter 2, and that's why we know what it is. But what's neat is that along with that immersion into the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, came immediately that other ministry of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, so that there would be this constant flow, like like rivers of living water, like a beautiful bubbling stream that doesn't stop and constantly refreshes the soul again and again and again and again, a fountain that never quits. They did not have that in the old covenant. They didn't, but you and I do. Sometimes we undersell our relationship to the Holy Spirit because we're dancing around trying to make sure everybody knows we're not charismatic believers. That has to stop. God wants us close to him. Intimacy with God is important to God. As I've been thinking about how frail life is, the fact that I could go at any time, many of us could go at any time, but looking at Revelation 21, and it really struck me in Revelation 21, where God makes this big announcement and it says there was a voice that came from the throne and it says, now, and you're like, okay, what's he gonna say? It's gonna be this great loud announcement. It says in Revelation 21, now the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they will be his people and God himself will be among them. It emphasizes it. Like this is what God wanted all along. Like in the garden, he came down to walk with Adam and Eve, and he had to say, Adam, where are you? And he had to call for him because Adam had sinned, right? And now there was separation, and the fellowship and the joy was broken. And God's going to restore it all because he loves us. And then you read in Revelation, he's going to make his throne room where we live. So we can always be with him. What we have in the new covenant is a step toward that. Where God himself has chosen to live in our frail little bodies. So we would know him well. Baptized and dunked into the Holy Spirit. And now he living inside of us. It's unfathomable. And there's so much more that goes along with that. If I had time, which I don't, I would say, where does the indwelling of the Holy Spirit lead? And the answer is to the fullness of the Spirit. The fullness. I would that you would take time to read Ephesians 5 and verse 18, where Paul said, be, I'll give you the literal translation of it, be being full of the Holy Spirit. It's a passive Command, open your heart up and let yourself constantly be characterized by, moved along by, empowered by, molded by the power of God that is in you. Be being full of 
the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on, and you will manifest that through your worship, speaking to one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart. You'll be so overflowed with thanksgiving. Your life will take on dimensions of joy and happiness. Your relationships will be strong in the home and all the rest of that. It flows from being full of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the contrast there, if any of you have been tempted with trying to get your highs from illicit drugs or drunkenness or whatever it may be, the verse in Ephesians 5.18 actually says, do not be drunk, remember? Do not be drunk with what? With wine. But, a very sharp contrast, instead of doing that, instead of letting yourself be overtaken by this outside influence of alcohol or whatever it may be, because you're trying to find some meaning and happiness in life, instead of that, open up your heart to the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. Let Him take control. You will find that it is much more fulfilling, much more long-lasting. God is no killjoy. That's why he made the better covenant with you, to put his very life inside of you so you would constantly have that bubbling fountain-like river of life you experience. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all the fruit of the Spirit bubbling up in your life. I fear that too many of you come to church week after week after week, and you just hear Bible, and you go home, and you don't develop your relationship with God. And so he's not exciting to you because you haven't learned him the way he wants to be learned. You haven't developed your, you're letting your pride and you're letting your stubbornness and formalities keep you from growing closer to the Lord. And yet there he is. He has baptized you. He has indwelt you and he has given you immeasurable fullness to take a hold of, but you have to cooperate with him. Part of that cooperation is what we talked about last week and being disciplined in your discipline so that you can uh, say no to the flesh and you can open your heart up to the power of the Holy Spirit and He'll work powerfully in you. It's so much more to say, but I pray that God will take those somewhat disjointed words this morning and make, uh, make a feast in your own heart, at least an awareness of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, that you'll never stop growing in your relationship with Him. Amen? And I pray you really mean that. I pray that in your heart... You really grow close to Christ and, and, and be a, be a post-Pentecost uh, believer in the full sense of it. Really take advantage of what you have been given th uh, through the new covenant. Father in heaven, thank you for these dear people. Thank you for their listening this morning. Thank you, Father God, for the Holy Spirit whom we cannot fully even understand what you're able to do with us what prayers you're able to answer, what ministries you're able to accomplish through us, what love you can show through us. It's just amazing. There's so many, Lord, that are wasting their time and they're not, they're not rising up and becoming whom you want them to become, Father God. I pray this not to their shame, but that they would be excited about what, what resources are available under the new covenant to them. May they, Lord, find in their studies of your New Testament everywhere how to pray in the Holy Spirit and how to be comforted in the Holy Spirit and how to be guided and led by the Holy Spirit. And we pray this bountiful blessing on each and every one of the believers. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray it. Amen.